God's really put a special word on my heart. You know, I was reading this article that just really intrigued me about Charlie Brown Christmas. It's a classic, right? Hopefully you've seen it. It came out uh, uh, last week in 1965. And the, uh, it was, what was interesting is it almost didn't happen. How many have seen Charlie Brown Christmas? Okay, you know what I'm talking about. It's a general idea. It's about the Peanuts characters, and they, this is their Christmas, and they're trying to come to grips with understanding Christmas. But it almost didn't happen because the writer in, at that time, Charles Schultz in uh, 1965, got a lot of pushback from the uh, studios that were producing it, <laughs> that were paying for it, which is funny. If you get pushed back in 1965, where are we at today? But just a thought. So they're pushing back on it, one, because uh, Charles Schultz took an entire narrative from the Bible and, and the Christmas story and put it in the Christmas, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas. And they didn't like that. Imagine, imagine putting a Christmas story in Christmas. But they, they pushed back on that. They, they didn't like that. They thought people aren't going to like that. They're, gonna, they're not going to receive it. But he wanted to do that, put that in. They pushed back on other things, too. They didn't like the fact that the children's voices were children. <laughs> the children's voices weren't adults sounding like children. They were actually kids. Charlie Brown, I think, was nine when he first did that, when they recorded that in 1965. So they didn't like that. They pushed, they pushed back on that. But Charles Schultz thought, you know what? Kids recognize kids. <laughs> and even though uh, they, uh, there's an adult that sounds like a kid, they recognize kids. But he left that in there, and they pushed back. They didn't like that. and they, So they just thought it was going to be a flop. They didn't like the fact that uh, he put in jazz music. And now jazz music defines Charlie Brown. If you hear Charlie Brown, the theme of Charlie Brown, the, the cartoon, it's, there's jazz music behind it. So it's really interesting how they pushed back. And they said, oh, adults won't like that. They didn't like the fact that there was no laugh track. It was the first time they had a, a cartoon without a laugh track in it and, and uh, to tell the people when to laugh. I think we need a laugh track because sometimes I do jokes. You guys don't laugh, so we push a button. You, you talk, oh, there's one. There's a relationship. <laughs> so, but of all those things, what they were most upset about was the fact that Charles Schultz, they thought, changed Charlie Brown, that he wasn't the same Charlie Brown because Charlie Brown in the in the comic strips and in everything before always ended with two words. Do you know what those two words were? Good grief. That's exactly right. Joe, you're my hero. <laughs> they always, he always, in other words, and they were saying, that's who Charlie Brown is. People identify with the good grief. Now, if you looked up good grief and see what it means, it means the sudden realization of something bad, <laughs> you know, but there's also a sense of resignation with it. That you just, uh, you know, this is the way it is. Good grief. I can't do anything about this. I say good grief all the time. I think maybe I was influenced, although I'm pretty sure we didn't watch TV in 1965. I don't think we had one. Maybe we did. I can't remember. But somewhere in there, I have, I have that. So that's, you know, that's a part of our a world around is good grief. But they were pushed back on that because they said they won't, they won't like it. But did you realize in 1965, half of every TV that was on during that during that time period, was watching that show. It was an instant classic. Everyone just loved Charlie Brown because there was something that resonated with him. There's something resonated with the people that said, hey, this is amazing. This is something that I like. And you see, the world always pushes good grief on us. They will. 
The world says, no, no, this is who you are. This is all you can do. This is all you can be. It's about good grief. But I think God has something better. <laughs> I think God has good grace. And, and, th- and as I've been talking these last several weeks about the seven steps that lead us into having a, an amazing holiday, having an amazing Christmas, how do we live that out? How do the, what are the practical steps that we take to really see how do we have an amazing uh, relationship with Christ during all that's going on, during all the holidays, the gifts, and everything that's happening? How do we do that? How do we live in that? And I want to talk about that and, and really sort of finish up this series because we're going to talk about the fifth, sixth, and seventh step that Jesus took. And it really is going to focus around probably the most significant for Christ festival that he was involved with. Because in there are, others are important. Passover, all those were important. But the festival of first fruits was something that was very significant. Most of us haven't even heard of it. I mean, you know, what is, what is that about? <laughs> and Jesus would have celebrated the festival of first fruits every single year probably of his life. It was immediately after Passover. And the, this festival was about one thing. It was about taking the first harvest, the first crops that had yield, and coming before God and taking the best of that and offering it to God. It was significant because when you did that, you were saying, God, I trust you. Here's the first fruits. I'm believing the rest is going to be there. Because you see, harvest was over a couple of months. It wasn't just right away. It took time to harvest it. And so the first harvest was an indication of what was going to happen. And they would take that first fruits and they would offer it to God. They said, God, we believe that something good's about to happen. Something good is coming our way. This harvest is just the beginning of everything that God is, is, is trying to do. But as important as all that was, it's important to note that the festival of, of first fruits, first fruits was, and the sacrifice of that was also connected to a place, as you would imagine. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses, verse 2, let's start there. It says, take some of your first fruits from the very first beginning of the harvest and all that you produce of the land and offer it to God. Then go to the place your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. In other words, it was always about the place because the place is what produced the, land, the, the fruit. You see how that all is tied together. Your place produces the fruit, and this is what you're offering to God. And I want to talk about your place because a lot of times we're very upset with our place. We don't understand our place. Why am I here? Why am I struggling? Why is this not happening? Why did that not turn around? Why was this person not healed? Why did you not meet this need? God, why am I struggling with all of this? You see, this was always about celebrating the trust that you had with God that you had that God was going to do this, that God was going to turn everything around. Now, it, what's, what's amazing is Christ was always there in the middle of this first fruits. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to read verse 20. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, Christ himself not, didn't just celebrate it. He most certainly celebrated the first fruit festival all of his life, But then after his death, he was part of it. Because you see, the festival happened the first day after the Sabbath, after Passover. Passover was Friday night, right? Jesus was crucified on Friday night. And then then there was Sabbath, that Saturday. And then the first day is when 
the, after that is when first fruits were celebrated. And that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So Jesus, all of his life, knowing, because he says in three days I would be raised from the dead, and the way that the Jews reckoned days was that any part of a day was one day. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning, Jesus rose from the dead. So can you imagine Jesus celebrating the Feast of First Fruits, realizing I will become the first fruit. I am the first fruit that's going to change people's lives. I am the first fruit that's going to turn everything around. But what's amazing is Jesus didn't just celebrate it and didn't just become it, but he gave it. Look what it says in James chapter 1, verse 18. It says, he chose us. He, he chose to give us new birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. We actually have become the first fruits. You are the first fruit of Christ. Christ rose from the dead. He became the first fruits, the promise that more is going to come. Don't forget how it all connects. More is going to come. God's going to do more. But also he has made you the same so that in you, you are the first fruits. You are the fact that more, God has so much more. God has so much more for you. See, I think so, so often is we sort of live the Charlie Brown good grief. We sort of live that. We think, I don't know, it's not going to work out. It's not going to happen. It's not going to change. This is who I am. And we fall into this fatalism, this thing that this is all I can do, and not believing God is bringing a change, that it's not just uh, what is going on here. Your place is there, but God has something powerful for your place, in your place. God has good grace, not just good grief. God has good grace. Now, through the Bible, we'll find something amazing. The, one of the motifs that you'll find over and over stories is just another way of saying motif, is the story of a cave, the story of caves. You see, Jesus was born in a cave, literally was born in a cave. The way they had it then is there would be a house next to a hill or something, and they would dig out beside the house, beside what was going on, a cave, to store the animals. That's where the animals would go. That's where the manger would be to feed the animals. That's where all the animals would be. And so when, when Joseph and Mary gets to Bethlehem, there was no room at an inn because there probably wasn't one but a small one. And there was no anyone else that would provide them except one person said, here, I got room in the, my cave. So Jesus was born in a cave. And he, why was Jesus born in a cave? Because he was all God and all man. He was born in cave. He understands cave. You see, cave is part of our story. Adam and Eve were in the garden, and, and I, don't, I don't know how long they were in the garden before they fell, but somewhere along the line they fell. Somewhere along the line they sinned. And the, the Bible's really clear. Eve was deceived, but Adam chose. Adam chose. Adam chose pride. Adam chose sin. And the Bible says that they were driven out of the garden. And there was an angel that was put at the, at, the, at the gate to guard it, and he had a flaming sword that he would wave back and forth. I think it was the first lightsaber. I'm convinced it was the first lightsaber. He would wave it back and forth so that they knew they couldn't get in. They were cast out of the garden. Where would they go? God always provides. He provided clothes for them, animal skins that, that he gave them to cover their shame, to cover their sin. But when they first left, there wouldn't be anything but maybe a cave. So they went from the garden to the cave. But the problem is, 
God didn't leave us in the cave. <laughs> Come on. We feel like that sometimes, and we live in the cave, and, we, and we're, we're trapped in there. But Jesus was born in the cave, but he left the cave. He wasn't always in there, and he came back only once back into the cave to destroy the tomb and to deliver us from sin and death. And I think sometimes we get stuck in the cave. And you think, well, Greg, what does that mean? What does it mean to be stuck in the cave? I think we, we get stuck in the cave because, metaphorically, we get stuck in what God, uh, not understanding the good grace that God has for us. You see, caves are dark, right? That's what they're mainly about. You can bring in a light, but they're dark. You know, I was in Carlsbad Cavern, never, ever been there, and they turn out all the lights, and you, the darkness is as dark as dark can be. There is no light anywhere at all. It it was totally pitch black. And I remember thinking, how dark is dark? And that's what's in a cave. But it's also also dangerous. Maybe wild animals can be in there. But a cave is also for hiding. If you go try to get away, the Bible is full of people that go and hide in the cave. But the cave is also for the dead. It's where you put dead people. It's a tomb. And too many times I think we just have settled in just thinking this is what I do. We hide in the cave. We hide in the cave. We, we stay in the cave. We're stuck in the cave. We're stuck in the, in the cave of sin or the cave of our shame or the cave of our fear or the cave of our doubt. We're stuck in these caves that, that God has so much more because we are the first fruits. God has so much more, but we just don't see it. We don't believe it. One of the most... Interesting stories that I've just always fascinated with is Elijah. Elijah was an Old Testament prophet, man of God, hear from God, brought fire down, consumed the altar. I mean, caused it to be no rain, and then prayed until there was rain. So he, he, he knew God. But, he, but God said, you don't know really all of me. You don't understand. You get the fire and the brimstone, but you don't get who I really am. So he, he tells Elijah, he said, Elijah, go up on the mountain and stand outside, and, and you will see who I am, and I will bring my presence. But Elijah was afraid and went into the cave. And he wasn't all the way in. He was just a little bit in, just, just hiding just inside, just inside the cave. And I think sometimes that's where we're at. Is that, God, I'm not all the way in the cave. I'm not like in the back. I'm not like those people. I don't do those things. I don't act that way. I'm a good person. And we just hide a little bit in the cave, but we're still in the cave. And it says that God brought fire and wind and storm. And in each time, God was not in the fire. He was not in the storm. He was, he was not in the, the great wind. And then God brought soft, gentle, almost representing kindness and mercy. And, and Elijah saw that God was in that. But he wasn't out in the mountain like he said, like God wanted him to be. He was hiding in the cave. I think so often God has so much more for us, but we hide in our pride and we hide in our failure and our doubt and our fear and our shame in the cave. And God is calling us out of the cave. Don't miss the grace Don't miss the power of God. Don't miss what God's doing by hiding in the cave. You say, Greg, how do I I get out of that? I don't want to be there. How do I do do that? Let me give you a few thoughts. Here's the fifth step of, of how we really celebrate and understand what God's doing. We have to expect his better. 
We have to expect his better. Now, now listen to me. There is a difference between expecting better and expecting his better. Expecting better is just a positive thinking, thinking, oh, things are going to get better. I'm just going to hang on. Because it might happen or it might not. <laughs> it might be bad. But, but, you, but expecting his better means that when tomorrow comes, even when it doesn't feel better, even when it seems like it's really much harder, even when it seems like everything is sort of falling apart and not well, He's in that. <laughs> we can trust him. There's a better there somewhere, even though you think, oh, well, you know, it'll be better tomorrow. No, no, no. It'll be, his better will be there. That means no matter how hard or how difficult or how broken or how messed up or how hurting, God is there. And you are the first fruits, and God is going to bring something good. You might be thinking good grief, but God's thinking oh, good grace. Come on. I got something bigger. I got something greater. You see, the problem is, that uh, we, don't, we don't really expect better. We don't really expect it. And, and the world will keep you in a small cave and not expect better, and not expecting something better for God. That he, they steal the fact that you're uh, really following God, that you are the first fruits. You see, the Magi came, right, the three the wise men, probably the Bible said, um, the Bible doesn't say how many. Church history, the very first aspect of church history we have in probably early uh, second century thought that there were 12. We don't know how many there were. Probably there was about 100 altogether all, all because it was a, it was a long, year-long trip. <laughs> it wouldn't have been easy. And so there was a lot, of, a lot of people. And then they came, the Bible says that they came and they were following, they were following the star. The, but when they came to Jerusalem, they looked up and they thought, oh, that's where we go. Why did they think they would go to Jerusalem? They'd been following the star all this time. But now all of a sudden they think, okay, I'm supposed to go to Jerusalem because that's where they would expect a king to be born. That's where, most certainly, where would the king be born? Oh, he would be born in the palace, <laughs> probably a great palace, probably the king's son himself. That's where they, they had this expectation. And I think sometimes... We have this expectation, and we stop following the star, what Jesus is doing, because we have an expectation this is what he'll do. God won't do that. God won't heal me. I don't, I don't believe in, in healing, and we hide in the back of our cave. God, God won't turn that around. God won't change that. God won't change this circumstance around. And, we, and all of a sudden, we live in the smallness, and we live in the, the back of the caves because we have an expectation that that is all that God will do. Forgetting you are the first fruit <laughs> Forgetting God said there's more to come. There's something greater that's going to come. We can trust him for tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. Are you believing for that? Are you just, is it so easy to hide in the back of the cave and, and say, God, well, I, don't, I don't know. I don't really expect you to do that. God wants to do so much more in our lives. But we need to expect better. Secondly, I really believe we need to live his promise. Live his promise. Live his promise, what he's doing. You see, I think what happened is the, the wise man, they were, they were, the magi were getting closer to Jerusalem, and all of a sudden the lights get brighter and brighter and brighter, and there's the glare of everything that's going on in the city. I, I saw a map they had on TV of uh, Florida, what it looked like from a satellite at night, and Tampa Bay area was all lit up. You know, from, from the north to the south, all lit up. And then you see a little gap, and you see probably Lakeland. 
And then you see a big old area, and that was all Orlando. But everything to the north and, and, and to the south of just that was dark. <laughs> Why? Because nobody lives there. <laughs> it's, it's just barren. It's dark. Have you ever been outside and maybe in the country, and you look up and go, whoa, where did all these stars came from? I remember the first time I went to the planetarium, and I'm, I'm looking up and thinking, they made this up. There's all these stars down up there. But if all the light was gone from the world, you could see all the stars. And I think so many times we get fixed on the glare of the city, on the glare, the glitz, the glamour. I once heard a sermon early when I was young. I said, boy, be, be careful. Watch out for the, the glare of the, of the world, the glamour of the world, and the girls of the world. <laughs> it's a true story. And you know, because we get, we get pulled into all of that. We just get pulled into this and that and that. And, and I always think that's what it's all about. They were following the wrong lights. And sometimes we just think, oh, that's what I need to do. I just need to follow the wealth. I need to follow the fame. I need to follow the good works. I need to follow these things. And they miss the very simple, powerful story that God has for us. And, and they, you, you lose the lights. You see... The world is, is inviting, <laughs> and it's full of promises. The world is full of promises. It really is. They'll say, I promise you this. If you go after that, you'll be happy. You'll be satisfied if you indulge in this. If you eat all this, <laughs> you eat and you eat and you eat, and the world says, oh, that's going to be good, and all we look down, and all we have is weight. <laughs> You're just thinking, this is not good. Or, or whatever it is, the world promises, but only the promises of God bring health. Only the promises of God bring life into us. I want us to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I love this verse. It's such a powerful verse. Watch what it says. There's more theology in this verse than you, you've, you've heard all week. Just watch this. It says, since we have these promises, what? The promises of God. Since we have the promises of God, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and the spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Now, what does that say? What is that verse saying to us? It says, if we hang on to the promises of God, if we know the promises of God, we'll actually have the strength, the ability, the fortitude, the trust, the faith to follow and to live a holy life. That's what it's saying. It says the reason so often that we don't have the strength and we constantly find ourselves stumbling and falling in our relationship with God, the reason that often happens and we're not really doing well is because we are trusting the wrong promises. The promise was that if I work hard all my life and put money in my retirement, I'll be taken care of. How many know that worked out well? God says, you trust me because where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. You trust me, and I'm going to meet every need. I'm going to take care of everything that you, you can trust God. You see, what promise are you following? What are your, the promises that, that you are seeking after, that you're uh, asking God? If when we follow according to God's word, when we follow his promises and trust his promises, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to trust God. <laughs> I'm going to trust that promise, that star. I believe God is going to do that. I believe God is going to move in my life. And when you trust that promise, then God is able to work out all these things. You see, we live connected to the promises. You live connected to the promises. When's the last time you stood on a promise? Just thought. When's the last time you just said, okay, God promised this. The word, I don't see it. <laughs> it's not happening. It's not in my bank account. It's not working in my family. This is not like that, but I'm going to stand on the promise. And you say, Greg, I don't have any promise. Oh, great. Read the Bible. 
They're full of promises. God's full of promises. He'll watch us and he'll take care of us and he'll guide us and he'll lead us. It doesn't mean everything's perfect. God never promises that you'll have a rose garden next week or tomorrow. But he promises in the midst of the thorns and whatever you're dealing with in life, he'll be there. He'll walk with you. You'll never walk alone. Here's my last thought. Trust his power. Trust his power. <laughs> you see, somewhere along the line, just saying, the, here, here are these wise men that have been following the star for probably a year and a half, at least a year, to get from the far side of where they're at and this whole group to get all the way. For a year, they've been following the star. Now, think about that, what that means. Some people say the star was so great, so special, they could see it in the day. I don't think so. I don't think that's me. Can't prove it either way. But I think they were these wise men found the star at night and began to follow it at night, and it was leading them. And so you know, realize they traveled by night. They would travel all night and then probably slept in the day with a few guards watching around and then traveled all night. So imagine doing that for a year. How messed up would you be? <laughs> Have you ever tried to work the night shift? When everyone lives in the day shift, <laughs> it's crazy. But for a year, at least a year, they did that. They followed it, and they followed it. It's probably hard. It's hard doing all that. It's hard believing for all that. It's, it's hard. And so somewhere along the line, it was just easy to trust something else. It was just easy to move on. It was just easy not to, not to. So they got to Jerusalem and thought, I'll just trust the king. He'll know where the baby's born. <laughs> You know, that worked out well. You know, it'll work out. It'll be to do that. And they didn't want to follow it anymore. And I think sometimes we're the same way. Greg, it was hard last week. It was hard following this star. It was hard living that way or acting that way. It was hard not seeing that answered. It was hard believing, and all of a sudden it's not going to be there. And there's this temptation to go, I'm just going to slink back in my cave because that's where I came from. But God has called us out of the cave. He's called us into something so much greater. I love John 11:38. Look what it says. It says, Jesus standing at the death and burial of his best friend in the world. I believe Lazarus was his best friend. Mary, Martha, Lazarus. They, that's where when he wanted to get away from everyone, including his disciples, you know where he went? To Martha's cooking. <laughs> to Mary, Mary's uh, 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 understanding of who he is, and to Lazarus as his best friend, supporter, biggest supporter. And now he's dead. And it says Jesus once more, deeply moved. That literally means that there was a stirring from the, the very depth of his soul. Once more stood and came before the tomb. It was a cave. <laughs> it's always a cave. It was a cave with a stone laid across it. Jesus had to move the stone, and he called out Lazarus, who came bouncing out of that. Come on, get out of that cave. You don't belong in that cave. It was such a great picture. I think Jesus understood, I'm going back into the cave. But when I come back out, no one's going to go back in because I'm going to break the power of sin and death, and I'm going to change everything because I am the first fruits of the promise of what everything that God is trying to do in our, in our life. And God just moved in the most powerful way. The picture we saw of Lazarus actually raised from the dead. Only Jesus could do that. Jesus broke the power of the cave. 
so that you and I can get out of it. The, the sin, the, the power that holds us so often. Come on, get out of the cave. Get out of that fear. Get out of that doubt. Get out of that worry. Get out of that anxiety. That wondering, God, can you do it? All of that. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. God shows you as the first fruits. You know what that says in, in, our, in our message this morning? God chose you for good grace, not for good grief. And the world lives Charlie Brown's good grief, don't they? They had that good grief. They're just, it's what they live. But we've been called out of the cave We've been called to so much, something so much greater. God chose us. God chose us to live in his good grace. You know what? I believe that's what God wants for you right now. I don't know what cave that you're easily in. I don't know if you have never given your life to Christ, if you're watching online and, and you've never really committed to Christ, or as a Christian, as a believer, like Elijah, you find yourself just sort of slinking back into the cave. Because you don't really understand why, God, you're doing this or why, what's happening. God said, come on out. You're the first fruit. <laughs> you're just the beginning. God's got so much more. Expect more. Believe more. Trust in what he's doing and see how God will change your life and turn everything around. Amen. You receive God's word this morning. Come on, give God thanks. Let me pray for you. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you so much for every single person here for your good grace, for your power. God, I just pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would just lift up every single person, no matter where they're at, no matter what they're struggling with. God, if they've been lured away by the world, the glare of the lights, or just the weariness of the journey, God, I pray you'd help them understand how you have transformed, you have broken the power of sin and death, and you have promise that we are the first fruits of something so much more. So Lord, I pray right now for every single heart, every single soul. And if there's anyone, God, anyone in here that does not know you completely, that hasn't surrendered their life to you, God, I pray that they would do it right now. And if that's you, I want you to pray with me. I want you to pray in your heart. I want you to pray in your spirit. And you say, dear Jesus, come into my life so that I can become the first fruit of everything good you're going to do, so that I can get out of the cave of my pain and my sin and my death and my doubt. And Jesus, I answer the call and come out of the cave. I receive you in my heart. God, I pray that you would do that for every single person watching, listening, every single person in this room, no matter where we're at, no matter what we're doing, God, we're going to trust you. We're going to believe that, that it's just beginning that we are the first fruits of a mighty harvest that God is going to do in our life, in our world, until the day we stand with you in glory. God, I thank you for that. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.